morning again. Happy Father's Day to all the guys. Thank you. So, if you've looked at the bulletin, you know I've changed everything up. I've messed with everybody this morning. Instead of starting chapter 6, we're going to take a look at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And, of course, you naturally have a question, a good question, of why in the world am I doing this? Why am I doing this today instead of picking right up at the beginning of chapter 6 of Sermon on the Mount? And the uh, the short answer is, is very early in the week, the Lord started pushing me to go this direction for this Sunday morning. And of course, being a curious and inquisitive person, I naturally had, okay, why God? Why do you want me to stop talking about Sermon on the Mount and do this this Sunday? And at least in part, the answer is that um, as I began working through it, that when we walk through the Sermon on the Mount and we listen to Jesus talk, so much of it, like much of the Gospels, emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. But the Lord impressed upon me that at this moment in where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to stop and pull back and highlight the divinity of Jesus before we go further into the Sermon on the Mount. And really, this works as a great moment. Is so Shockingly, the Holy Spirit has orchestrated a phenomenal moment to transition between 5 and 6. Because chapter 6 of Matthew starts out with Jesus teaching again showy religion. That's the word I came up with. And the transfiguration stands in just a stark contrast of real awe and wonder to the man-made tinsel town awe and wonder of showy religion. And so you'll have to remember everything I'm saying today next Sunday morning when we start chapter 6. So if you need to sit, you know, maybe next Saturday night you would... uh you do you well to to listen to this sermon again before you get up and come on Sunday morning. Just a suggestion. I'm not going to do it, but y'all should. <laughs> I never listen to my own sermons, at least not right away. It takes. I have to have distance between them before I can listen to them. Okay, so with that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17, and then I will pray to get us started. Lord, thank you for this beautiful gift of your divinity coming to the forefront of your personhood, Lord Jesus, in the transfiguration. And I pray, Lord, that it would just captivate our souls in exactly the way it's supposed to, and that our hearts would be enthralled and amazed at the wonder and majesty and awe of who you really are. And we praise you and we thank you for that. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come into this room, rest upon each and every one of us. Pray that specifically that I would speak words and only words that you would have spoken this morning for those who hear them. And that all of us would hear these words, receive them, and respond to them in exactly the way you're trying to reach us this morning. And we ask it for our own good as well as for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Wow, this is pretty amazing stuff. And this transfiguration is recorded in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not record the transfiguration. Mark, as is typical in his cases, has a more abbreviated narration of the transfiguration. I like to call Mark the hurry-up gospel. Hurry up and get to the point. That's the way Mark writes. Hurry up and get to the point. Uh, Matthew, being a much more Jewish-oriented gospel, emphasizes things that are important to Jewish people. And then, of course, Luke, being the good doctor and Greek historian that he is, writes the way that most of us think. And so he includes a few extra little details that are not included by Matthew and help us gather some pieces. And we'll talk about that when we get to them. But the core pieces are in all three gospels of this transfiguration. The core pieces of Jesus transfigured this amazing white light that emanates from him, both his face and his clothes. Uh, Moses and Elijah there, Peter talking out of his brain, and then the voice from heaven that causes them to fall on their face. And then Jesus telling them to stand up and don't be afraid. All those core pieces are in each of the three narratives. And so when we look at this, you know, I've worked through this passage before, and I thought, oh, this will be easy. And then I start working through it this time, and like, wait a minute, there's this, and there's that, and there's this part that I never saw before. And so, I guess the bottom line I'm trying to say is, is I'm not covering everything this morning. There's still more stuff here in this transfiguration passage than I'll be able to talk about today. Which then immediately raises the question, well, how did I get to the places I decided to talk about today? What, how did I choose those? And I'll say that the short answer is this, this idea that the Lord just kept hammering at all week of the glory of Christ and his divinity and emphasizing those pieces. So that's the question. That's the answer to the question of how did I get to choosing this that I'm emphasizing? And the first place we'll start is in verse two itself with this, the brightness of Jesus. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, Luke talks about, uses the term bleached white. And what's really fascinating about Luke's choice of words is in the words that he chose were always used to describe divinity in their bleached white appearance like in the Greek gods. If you've ever seen movies of where they present them in this bright white light, this is the same word that Luke is using, this idea that it's this is not just something that can be accomplished with earthly materials and earthly methods of bleaching. This is a kind of bleach and a brightness and whiteness that is supernatural. That's the emphasis that Luke is making there. 
And so in addition to that, we recognize and begin to understand that this isn't just like some type of spotlight, you know, where where the room grew dim and then the, the little circle around Jesus grew bright, like on stage or something. That's not what they're describing here. This is something totally different, something beyond anything that can be accomplished by natural means and in human ability. This is just divine radiance that's occurring when Jesus is transfigured before their face. I talked about this with a friend and it's like, you know, for the, for the majority of the New Testament or majority of the gospels, we, I mentioned this, we really see Jesus as in his humanity and, and that human aspect of him is always, almost always in the forefront of the way he's presented to us. But here in this moment, the human Jesus recedes into the background and the divine, fully God Jesus just, just radiates to its full glory in front of Peter, James, and John. And to truly understand what this is, that we, we have to go backwards and then forwards in the biblical timeline to really understand it. And so we go backwards to Daniel chapter 10. And this is where we start to understand Ooh, this is not just your average, ordinary, everyday kind of shining in the sun moment. So Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth nor did I anoint myself at all for full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris River, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl and his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleaming burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw the great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand these words that I speak to you, Stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Do you see the parallels in the description between this great figure hovering over the Tigris River as Daniel stands on the banks and this passage in Matthew from the Transfiguration? At the sound of the voice, everybody falls on their face. Well, Daniel falls in his place. Everybody else turned and ran. Right? And then the description of this, of this figure. Appearance like lightning. 
a face of beryl. I mean, we're, this is nothing. This is absolute a description of a divine being revealing himself in a physical form that Daniel can see and comprehend with his eyes. And, and there's nothing like it. I mean, it's just the most stunning and amazing. And then it happens again in Daniel chapters 11 and 12, where he sees this figure again in other places. And scholars throughout biblical history have all affirmed that this is one of those those Old Testament appearances of Jesus. And I'm completely convinced that is also the case here. He is being displayed in his full brilliance again as God there in that moment for Daniel. And if you understand the rest of Daniel, starting at the, the next couple of verses of chapter 10 going forward, this is a gigantic transitional moment in not just Israel, is Jewish history, and biblical history, but it's also this gigantic shifting moment in world history. He suddenly shows up and the whole world gets turned upside down. The Medes and the Persians, who are the superpowers that nobody can beat, suddenly get beat by the Greeks. This young punk on the world scene that nobody thought had anything to go on, named Alexander the Great, shows up and opens up a big can of butt whooping. And then it goes on to become the next, he becomes the Greek king who rules the universe. And then the other visions that Daniel has about the different world leaders that come along with the ram and the goat and all those different things. This is, this is, look, there's two things I want you to really grasp. This amazing visual appearance of this divine being that cannot be explained anything in the natural realm. Everything and every aspect of his appearance and his his look is supernatural. And then there is this gigantic world history shift that occurs because of what he is saying is about to happen. That's the things I want you to grasp from Daniel chapter 10. Now we get to go forward, which is still going backwards for us. Okay, that was supposed to be funny. We go forward in the Bible, but it's still going backwards for us. To Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I'll give you a second to get there, but I won't wait long because this is just too good. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. And on account of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatria and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, 
and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay, so if there was any confusion at the beginning of this description of this divine being by John in Revelation about who it is, these last couple of phrases just sort of end that and settle it finally, that this is Jesus. I am the living one. I died and behold in my life forevermore. Okay, so he died and he rose from the dead. That only fits one person. That's Jesus. And then I have the keys for death in Hades. Only Jesus can do that. So this is, there is no question that John sees Jesus in his full divine glory here in this first couple of, uh, these first few verses of chapter one in the, in the Revelation. And remember, John was on the mountain with Peter and his brother when Jesus was transfigured. He had seen this one before. He had seen this movie before. And he knew what he was looking at. And we, and look at, I mean, the descriptions are so identical, so, so similar. The only thing missing that would absolutely, unequivocally, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove that the Jesus on the transfiguration is the Jesus in Daniel chapter 10 and the Jesus in Revelation 1 is a golden sash. That's the only thing the man's missing. And I guess they just weren't available that day on the mountaintop. I don't know. But that's the only thing missing to slam the door on anybody else but the same person in all three appearances. Everything's the same. The divinity of Jesus is just on bright display there on that mountaintop that afternoon. And then when we combine Daniel 10 and Revelation 1, we understand this is God. This isn't just some B-level deity like the Greeks describe in their mythology. This is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, but still fully 100% God. And that's who also gave us the Sermon on the Mount. This divine bright person, this divine being that was had the mask of his humanity peeled away and shown in full glory that moment on the mountaintop is still the same Jesus that talks throughout the rest of the Gospels and gives us the Beatitudes and everything else in the Sermon on the Mount. This is God speaking. Of course, you can't get away from this passage without dealing with one of the difficult questions of Moses and Elijah being there on the mountaintop. Why are they there? Luke tells us they were there talking about Jesus' impending trip to Jerusalem, which would then result in his arrest, persecution, beatings, and, and then his crucifixion and resurrection. That's what they were talking about. Okay, so that's great. Luke, thank you, Luke. I really appreciate you in chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, adding that little piece to the narrative so we understand what they were talking with Jesus about. But that still leaves us with a challenging question. Why Moses and Elijah? I mean, why not Abraham and Samson? Why not David and Daniel? Why not Ezekiel and Eli from the Old Testament? Why Moses and Elijah? And this is, look, this is a, a question that has perplexed theologians throughout church history over the centuries. And there's never a really good answer that's sort of like, oh, yeah, that's definitely it. 
We never get that as to why Moses and Elijah. We know that they are two figures in the Old Testament who spoke directly to God, right? You know, Moses says, I want to see your face. And God says, well, here, hide in the rock. I'll put my hand over your face and you can look at my backside. Then he does the exact same thing with Elijah, right? However, they weren't the only ones who spoke directly to God. I mean, Abraham spoke directly to God. As did the elders on Mount Sinai. So that doesn't seem to really be it. They were the only two figures in the Old Testament who got allowed to see them, but yet only their backside. So I don't know. That doesn't seem to fit. What is the answer? It is. Look, we don't know. We don't know why Moses and Elijah, the best we can come up with, the best answer we have is that they represent the law and the prophets. Moses as the author, human author of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant. And Elijah as one of the greatest of the prophets representing the prophets, what we know is the entire Old Testament, that they were there as those representatives of those two pieces that pointed towards Jesus. They were both important transitional figures in biblical history. You had the Exodus, then you had the New Covenant, the creation of the people of Israel, this whole new thing that God was doing with Israel. Then when you have Elijah, he, he becomes an important transitional figure in the in Judean and world history with the changes of kings in Samaria, Syria, as well as Judea. And this transitioning to a more of a moment of judgment after Elijah is just these are transitional figures and there's this transitional moment and every time this glorified deified figure shows up it's a transitional moment in world history I illustrated or explained to you what was happening in Daniel as a result of his moment appearance we see a similar thing occurring in Revelation after he appears with everything that is displayed in, in, in the book of Revelation, with the rise of the Antichrist, his ultimate defeat, and then finally the restoration of everything that we lost in the Garden of Eden through sin. So here we are again, but what's the big transitional moment on that mountaintop that day? Well... The answer to that is that the big transition is from the old covenant to the new, from a law of works to a law of grace, from everything that's understood about how we are made right with God through the Old Testament is now shifts and changes into everything that we understand about how we're made right with God through the blood of the Lamb and the grace of God. All of this culminating in this moment where Jesus is bringing the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and initiating the new covenant. Nobody can change the rules of a covenant that God makes except God. And if you aren't God, you can't change the rules. And Jesus is clearly changing the rules about the covenant. Therefore, for his changing of the covenant to be something new, he has to be God. And that's the other part of what 
is being accomplished right here in this moment. It's illustrating, it's showing and proving to the three most important figures in the early New Testament church that Jesus is God. He is legitimately qualified to do what he's telling you he's doing because he is God. Then the third thing that stands out from all this, okay, he's, whoo, this is God. And he's making a big change and shift and everything from what was to what is and what will be. And God the Father says, listen to him. There in verse 5, Peter was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, I've read a lot about the transfiguration over the years. This is a place I've studied often. And one of my conclusions is that this is an often overlooked aspect of the transfiguration. We get all wrapped up in this white robe and this brilliance and who is Moses and Elijah. I mean, why are they there? What's the, what are they doing? What does it mean that they're present? And we get wrapped up in all that stuff and Peter's losing his mind. We get wrapped up in all that and we miss this one piece that is, I think, the central point to the whole passage. Listen to him. The whole experience is to emphasize and legitimize this command from God the Father. And it is rooted in the covenant God made with the people at Mount Sinai. Let me just read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on that day of the assembly when you said, Ooh, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then Jesus comes along and says, someone even greater than Moses is before you. Look, all the different prophets that came along after Moses are partial fulfillments of this promise that I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. Because it was needed in those moments. But when Jesus shows up and proclaims to them one greater than Moses is here, he is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise from the Lord of a prophet from among their brothers. And once we make this connection of the transfiguration and the promise of a prophet like Moses, it adds even greater importance to listening and doing what Jesus says. As a friend of mine uh, likes to say about these kind of moments in Scripture, we just upped the voltage. I know, that's a engineer science-oriented analogy, but sorry. That's where he and I live. <laughs> so you get the best of being Kent. You know, you, you, we just upped the voltage. Whew, okay. So Jesus is really displaying his divinity He's showing that he's this ultimate prophet that was promised to the people in Moses' day. He reveals himself to Daniel in this mighty glory and then again to John a second time. Do you realize, do you realize, do you ever get jealous of like John the Apostle? I mean, he's like, 
this just isn't fair. You not only get to see Jesus when he was here on the earth, you got to saw him in his full brilliance and glory twice. I like just once. Can I just just once? Can I see him in his full brilliance and glory? No. No, you cannot. I know I'm a sinful person. No, you cannot because I love you too much. If I showed you my full brilliance, you'd be dead. Well, it's not a bad way to go. Of course, you never get to tell anybody, right? I mean, that's the bad part about God shows you your brilliance and then you instantly die. You never get to tell anybody, oh, I saw Jesus in all his glory. Of course, they wouldn't believe you anyway. Okay, I'm sorry. I got sidetracked. Should have never gone down that road about being jealous of John. So what are we to do with all this? What are, as, what's, so what? That's right. The, the question hanging in the air right this second is, so what? The beautiful explanation of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Jesus in his glory, but so what? Well, I come up with three things for us to take away from here to do. And a couple of them I don't really like, but nonetheless, they're what we have to do. The first one is we need to eradicate any doubt, any doubt at all that Jesus is God. If there's any place left of a doubt and question or hesitation about the full divinity of Jesus, this is this passage is meant to eradicate those. He is 100% human and he is 100% divine. To us, it appears that one aspect is emphasized over the other or is more apparent at different places in the New Testament. But there's never a moment that he's not 100% both. He's always both. We just see one part of the other. And the Jesus that we see in the Gospels is primarily emphasis his humanity. And his divine nature only comes to the forefront infrequently in the Gospels like this. And by divine nature, I mean that where he sheds his human appearance and we see this divine glory of Christ. And then after the Gospels in the New Testament, it keeps his divine nature at the forefront and his humanity recedes into the background. So once Jesus ascends from the grave and we start moving into the, to the Acts and the rest of the New Testament, the Jesus we see there is almost always this divine, glorious being presented to us. So we eradicate all doubt that this is God. The second one, this is the one I don't like, obey Jesus. God's not fooling around here. He's serious as a heart attack. Deuteronomy 18 makes it clear to not obey Jesus is to invite disastrous consequences. The part of the passage I didn't read following verse 18 was about what happens when the prophet speaks and you don't obey him, God's going to punish you. But if you do, good things will happen to you. And so from Deuteronomy 18, it's clear that when we obey Jesus, we are going to enjoy the blessings of life as well. But to disobey is to invite disastrous consequences, both now and in eternity. Likewise, obeying brings blessings both now and in eternity. Then we have to understand what we have received today on obeying Jesus now adds greater urgency to the Sermon on the Mount. Understanding that His divine glory was revealed so that we would obey him, ups the voltage 
on what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes about anger, about lust, about showy, flashy religion, all of that stuff now takes on an even more intensity than it did before in understanding that, in fact, all of Scripture, Jesus is speaking, not just the red letters in our Bibles. And then the last one is don't be afraid. I don't know about you, but I think about having to stand, right, what does Revelation say? We get to the end of Revelation, we got to stand in front of this Jesus, right? We look just, let's just talk about the Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. The one on the mountaintop? I'm not so thrilled about standing in front of that Jesus and trying to justify the way I've done things over the course of my life. I can play the, well, I didn't know any better game for a little while. I can play, well, I tried my best. But none of those are really exciting defenses to me when I'm standing before this Jesus trying to defend myself for the actions I've taken or didn't take. It's kind of frightening to think about I'm going to stand in front of that Jesus and have to answer questions about, well, you know, on that day you were supposed to do this. Why didn't you do it? I told you not to do that in the Sermon on the Mount. I told you to do that on the Sermon on the Mount. Why didn't you? I don't know. Right. Go back to like I was when I was four years old. Why did you do that? I don't know. I don't know. You can hear my four-year-old self standing in front of Jesus. I don't know. That's a frightening, I don't know about you, but that's frightening to me to stand in front of Jesus and go, I don't know, when he asked me why I did or didn't do something. But even here, his mercy and kindness is shown. Because when Peter and James and John are laying on their faces, scared to death, like everybody else who sees this glorious, radiant being, what has happened? Jesus does the same thing to them that he did to John in Revelation and he did to Daniel on the banks of the Tigris River. He reaches down and touches them and says, do not be afraid. Even here, when you and I get to see Jesus in all of his divine glory, we will be just like all the other figures in Scripture who see it. We will go face first on the ground. We'll fill with this idea of obeying all that Jesus says. As I've said so often throughout this series on the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, it is just too much. It's too much. I will die. But Jesus touches us with his healing hand and he tells us, rise and have no fear. He can say that because he has bought us with his blood and thus the protective promise of Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 comes to fruition. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that purpose clause for the purpose of 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What are, I don't have to say, I don't know, on that day. All I got to say is, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus, everything, every charge, every accusation, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus. I'll be like a, like a record stuck on repeat. Blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus. That'll be, that's, that's my best answer. And it is, hallelujah, praise Jesus, all of our best answer on that day. The blood of Jesus. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when I mess up and don't do what I'm supposed to do, there is no condemnation. Because we who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So my exhortation to you, my brothers and sisters, is live, walk, and love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much that you would show yourself like this to us. Thank you so much that a divine being of such glory and awe would humble himself to take on flesh and then to die and shed your blood for us. Thank you. Thank you for loving us this much. And then thank you for sending your spirit to change us and to dwell in us and to empower us to walk in the spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to do this. In my prayer, Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning who has never fully put their trust in you for the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of the broken relationship with you, then I pray that this day is the day that you and your Holy Spirit reveal you to them and reveal all of your glory to that person. And while you're at it, just go ahead and throw some of that glory at us too so that we see it again. In Jesus' name, amen.